Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertaining stories. If you'd like to support HDDS or enjoy some perks, like ad-free early releases or patron-exclusive mini-episodes, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. To keep up with HTDS news, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's Palm Sunday, April 9th, 1865. General Ulysses S. Grant and a few officers ride along a dirt road in the quaint hamlet of Appomattox Courthouse. But they aren't headed to the town's namesake building. No, they are riding to its other impressive structure. The McLean House. Wilmer McLean bought the charming, three-story tall, red brick home with white trim windows and an expansive porch a few years back, after his previous residence became the battlefield for First Bull Run slash Manassas. The poor guy wanted to avoid the fighting. How ironic. If all goes well today, his parlor is where the war will effectively end. This party of Union leaders makes it to McLean's home at 1.30 p.m. Tying off his horse, Ulysses ascends the wide wooden stairs leading to the front door alone. Stepping inside, he enters the parlor immediately on his left. Different accounts will recall various details on the furniture, but the 17 by 19 foot room has, at least, a black fireplace adorned with white vases, patterned carpeting, a turtle top marble table, a small wooden oval table, a couch, and a number of chairs. It's here that Ulysses is greeted by three men. U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Orville Babcock, Confederate Colonel Charles Marshall, and of course, the man with whom Ulysses hopes to start the peace process, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The two commanders could not contrast more starkly. At 58 years old, the white-bearded, blue-blooded Confederate is dressed in an impeccable gray uniform with a silk sash and dress sword. He stands tall and elegant. Meanwhile, the 42-year-old, dark-bearded U.S. commander wears a dirty, union-blue uniform and mud-caked boots. No sword. Only his shoulder straps indicate his rank of lieutenant general. Both men apologize to the other. The one for having nothing suitable apart from this new uniform. The other for wearing such, quote-unquote, rough garb. Other union leaders enter. Ulysses introduces them and tries to make small talk. I met you once before, General Lee, while we were serving in Mexico, when you came over from General Scott's headquarters to visit Garland's brigade. To the Ohioan's surprise, Bobby claims to remember him as well. Meanwhile, Bobby Lee expresses his thanks to Lawrence Williams. The Federal General sent him a message this morning, informing him that his Confederate son, Custis Lee, was not killed in battle a few days ago, as initially reported. But good as that news is, Bobby has no interest in dragging this out. He's sick at the thought of what must be done and would rather dispense with the pleasantries. I suppose, General Grant, 
that the object of our present meeting is fully understood. I ask to see you to ascertain upon what terms you would receive the surrender of my army. The U.S. Army General-in-Chief understands. He'll later note in his memoirs the empathy he feels. He's feeling for Bobby Lee in this moment. I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause. Though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which people ever fought. Well-dressed and spoken as the vanquished Virginian is, Ulysses can still see the pain hiding behind the white beard and brown eyes. I mean merely that your army should lay down their arms and not take them up again during the continuance of the war unless duly and properly exchanged, Ulysses answers. Those are about the conditions which I expected would be proposed, the Confederate responds, nodding approvingly. Ulysses starts to wax eloquent on peace, the end of this fight, a cessation to the needless loss of life. Once more though, Bobby points him to the task at hand. I presume, General Grant, we have both carefully considered the proper steps to be taken, and I would suggest that you commit to writing the terms you have promised so that they may be formally acted upon. Very well, I will write them out. Ulysses' aide-de-camp, Colonel Ely Parker, brings his cigar-chewing commander the small oval table. Ulysses chews away as he writes up the terms. Once done, he hands it to Bobby. Putting on his spectacles, the older Virginian can hardly believe what he's reading. General Grant is offering him and his entire army protection from being prosecuted for treason. His officers can even keep their arms and horses. The generosity is astounding. These are not the terms of a conqueror. These are the terms of one who wishes to heal a nation. This will have a very happy effect, Bobby replies as he reads. After making some small edits to the original draft's language, Ely Parker puts his gifted penmanship to task and writes up the formal surrender. It's concluded. Though the formal ceremony will take place three days from now, Bobby Lee has surrendered the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. He makes the obligatory rounds, greeting each of Ulysses' officers, but pauses as he comes to Colonel Ely Parker. You know, the man who just penned the terms of surrender. Bobby looks mortified as he takes in the well-built man's black hair and dark complexion. Is Ely black? No, he's a Senecan. In fact, he's a grand sachem of the Iroquois League. Bobby seems to relax as he realizes Ely is indigenous. I am really glad to see one real American here, Bobby finally says as they shake hands. Ely's response could not be more profound. Speaking as an indigenous American at the end of a war with still unknown ramifications on American identity, he answers the gray-clad general. We are all Americans. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and I'd like to tell you a story.
Today, we end the Civil War. We've heard so many stories and met so many people, but now we'll hear how two generals on a battlefield in Virginia bring this brutal, bloody war to a close. To start, I'll tell you about the final battle at Petersburg and the fall of Richmond. From there, we'll follow Bobby Lee as he makes a desperate dash across Virginia to save his army and the Confederacy. You'll learn about some of the final battles of the Civil War and the lead-up to the surrender at Appomattox. Once that's done, I'll talk about a few big-picture takeaways from the war. You know, the broad themes you'll want to know before we move on to the next phase of American history. So, go back in time a month with me to March 1865. Let's see how Robert E. Lee goes from defending Richmond to surrendering to Ulysses S. Grant in the village of Appomattox Courthouse. Here we go. Rewind. It's March 20th, 1865. Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant sits at his headquarters in City Point, Virginia, just outside the Petersburg battle lines. Ulysses and his wife, Julia, have heard how tired and run down President Lincoln looks these days. So the Grants have decided to invite Lincoln to visit, see the troops, and take a rest. Ulysses writes to his boss, Can you not visit City Point for a day or two? I would like very much to see you, and I think the rest would do you good. When the president gets the invitation, he immediately agrees. The idea of getting out of D.C. for a few days sounds so good, in fact, that First Lady Mary Lincoln and their son, Tad, decide to come along. Yeah, you know you're getting desperate for a day off when a vacation near the front lines of the Civil War sounds better than a day in the office. On March 23rd, the Lincolns hop on the steamer, River Queen, and head south to meet up with Ulysses. The president has a great time on the short journey. It feels so good to be out from under the weight of office seekers, meetings, telegrams, and battlefront news. Mary describes that Lincoln, quote, freely gave vent to his cheerfulness. He was almost boyish in his mirth and reminded me of his original nature. Close quote. The River Queen arrives at City Point on the James River the next evening, and Lincoln's feeling better than he has in years. The President and the Lieutenant General have a quick meeting. Ulysses assures Lincoln that the war will be over soon, that Confederate General Robert E. Lee is running out of men and supplies with which to defend Petersburg. Lincoln goes to bed, unaware of just how true Ulysses' words were. Here's the thing. Ten miles west of City Point, in Petersburg, Virginia, Bobby Lee is as stressed as Lincoln is relaxed. He doesn't have enough soldiers to defend the ramparts or man the guns on the Petersburg lines, and he doesn't have enough food or ammo to supply the troops he has. This frustrates the hell out of the newly appointed general-in-chief of the Confederate armies. He writes to the CSA Secretary of War and begs for food for his men. He also writes, I can no longer sustain even our small force of cavalry around Richmond. That's right. There's nothing for the horses to eat either. Oof. Bobby Lee's in a tough spot. But he's got an idea. The white-bearded Virginian plans to abandon Petersburg, fight his way through Union lines, march southwest, and hook up with General Joseph Johnston in North Carolina. This plan will mean giving up the capital city of Richmond, but it will save the Army of Northern Virginia and breathe hope into the dying Confederacy. Within hours of Lincoln's arrival at City Point, Bobby Lee puts his plan into action. In the pre-dawn light of March 25th, Confederate soldiers make their move against a small log cabin in the east portion of Petersburg lines known as Fort Stedman. 
A few Confederate soldiers, acting like deserters, come up on the Union pickets at the fort and start a conversation. Once the blue-clad guards are fully relaxed, the rebel deserters show their true colors and signal for their comrades to launch an attack. The battle-hardened, gray-clad men soon overrun the surprised Union soldiers at the fort. But the Rebs are overwhelmed by Yankees and can't hold on to Fort Stedman for long. By lunchtime, Federal troops have retaken the fort and captured Confederate breastworks. Union armies inflict 5,000 casualties, including taking about 2,000 prisoners of war. Bobby Lee has lost men, lost part of his defensive works, and lost the element of surprise. That afternoon, Lincoln still goes on his scheduled tour of Union lines and troops. But the presidential entourage can't miss the aftermath of the Battle of Fort Stedman. The sights sober Lincoln's mood. When he sees lines of Confederate POWs, one observer reports, quote, Lincoln's whole face showed sympathetic feeling for the suffering about him. Close quote. But the tour continues and the rail splitter's presence cheers up Union soldiers holding the lines at Petersburg. That evening, Ulysses, Lincoln, and several other generals and officers sit around a campfire. Their easy conversation turns serious toward the end of the night. Ulysses turns his blue eyes on Lincoln and asks, Mr. President, did you at any time doubt the final success of the cause? Lincoln doesn't hesitate. Never for a moment. The president's visit to City Point strengthens his relationship with Ulysses. A few days later, the two men are joined by another general who has been fighting to save the Union. General William Tecumseh Sherman, better known to his friends as Comp. Now, Ulysses' best friend, Comp, had already been planning to come to City Point before Lincoln showed up. It's just good timing and better luck that the president happens to be here, too, when Comp arrives on the night of March 27th. The next morning, some of the highest authorities in the Union war effort Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, U.S. Navy Admiral David Porter, all meet to discuss how to bring the four-year-long war to an end. The military men and their commander-in-chief want to know what terms of surrender they should offer to the Confederate armies when the time comes. Lincoln emphasizes generosity and leniency. All I want of you is to defeat the opposing armies and to get the men composing the Confederate armies back to their homes at work on their farms and in their shops. Let them have their horses to plow with and, if you like, their guns to shoot crows with. We want those people to return their allegiance to the Union. Damn, those are generous terms. So Kump asks a clarifying question. What about Confederate President Jefferson Davis? Should he be tried for treason? Of course, Lincoln goes back to his country lawyer roots and answers with a story. He tells of a man who has vowed to give up alcohol. When he goes to a friend's house, his host offers him lemonade. The host then says the lemonade would go down easier if he pours a bit of brandy in it. Lincoln relates the man's reply. If you can do so, unbeknown to me, I would not object. Kump laughs and nods in understanding. If Jeff Davis can escape the country and avoid a treason trial, unbeknown to Lincoln, that would be just fine with the president. Kump leaves the meeting impressed with Lincoln. The red-bearded general later recalls, Of all the men I ever met, Lincoln seemed to possess more of the elements of greatness combined with goodness than any other. 
That evening, the party breaks up. Kump returns to North Carolina. Ulysses heads a few miles west to the battlefront near Petersburg. Lincoln stays in City Point, eager for these men to bring the war to a close. And Ulysses wastes no time making that happen. On March 29th, the Union commander takes a short train ride west from City Point to Gravelly Run, the new headquarters of the Union front. He writes out orders for his short in stature but fearless cavalry commander, Phil Sheridan. You might remember from episode 64 that Phil has been rocking it on the battlefield, cutting off Confederate supply lines and subduing his rebel counterparts. Ulysses' orders seem to ignore that. They outline that Phil and his men should try to hit Bobby Lee's right flank, but if that's a bust, the cavalry should ride down to North Carolina to help Tecumseh Sherman and his army. Um, what? So when Phil reads Ulysses' orders, he's kind of pissed. But the blue-eyed lieutenant general gets it. He pulls Phil aside and gives him the whole picture. Ulysses had to put a contingency plan in writing. But he tells Phil that he fully intends to end the war right here. The cavalry won't have any need to go to North Carolina. Phil brightens up and replies, I'm glad to hear it, and we can do it. The mustachioed cavalryman goes on to say that as the war ends, he wants, quote, to be in at the death, close quote. Phil positions his men near the crucial crossroads called Five Forks to cut off Bobby Lee's best escape route. Now, since the debacle at Fort Stedman, Bobby Lee has stretched out his Petersburg line so thin they are ready to snap. Even so, he sends 11,000 men under the command of General George Pickett to, quote, hold five forks at all hazards, close quote. But Bobby Lee also sends a message to CSA President Jeff Davis up in Richmond that this move seriously diminishes our ability to maintain our present line. The next 72 hours will be crucial. On Thursday, March 30th, it starts raining. The rain pours down in sheets, fills trenches, and soaks gunpowder. But that does not deter Phil Sheridan from launching an attack on General George Pickett's lines at Five Forks. On Friday, the 31st, the desperate Confederate soldiers fight against Phil's Union troops with a tenacity that belies their low numbers and even lower rations. But how long can they hold out? Up in Richmond, Jeff Davis makes a move that shows just how worried he is. He gets his wife, Verena, and their four living children out of town. On Saturday, April 1st, Union soldiers fight on. Now Phil once told Ulysses, I have never in my life taken a command into battle and had not the slightest desire to come out alive unless I won. Damn. No wonder Ulysses gave this assignment to Phil. After two days of hard fighting at Five Forks, Union numbers and Phil Sheridan's iron will finally break the Confederate lines. Ulysses doesn't pause for a second. He knows that this victory has opened his chance to break the lines at Petersburg. Bobby Lee has lost about 20% of his army to death, wounding, or capture in the last week. So the Union Lieutenant General orders a dawn attack of the Petersburg breastworks. At 4.45 on Sunday, April 2nd, Union guns open fire on the rebel lines. The Army of the Potomac has been fighting here for months. This is their chance to finally overrun the seemingly impenetrable Confederate lines and seize Petersburg. The 125,000 blue-clad Yankees fight with everything they've got. They break through the outer lines in several places, taking thousands of Confederate soldiers prisoner. 
Bobby Lee, with only about 33,000 men, realizes he can't hold Petersburg or Richmond any longer. The white-haired Virginian orders a full retreat. Around 10 a.m., Bobby Lee sends a message to his bosses in the capital. I see no prospect of doing more than holding our position here till night. I am not certain that I can do that. If I can, I shall withdraw tonight north of Appomattox. Word of the disaster at Petersburg soon reaches Jeff Davis, 20 miles north in Richmond. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At 11 o'clock on Sunday, April 2nd, Jeff Davis sits in his family pew at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. The torrential rains that had soaked the soldiers at Five Forks have finally cleared. Sunshine pours through the detailed stained glass windows lining the walls of the church. Jeff quietly listens to the sermon. Then a messenger walks up the aisle, carrying a single envelope, and stops at the Confederate president's pew. The pastor continues his sermon as Jeff opens the envelope and reads the message inside. It's that telegram from Bobby Lee, received just 20 minutes ago at the War Department. Jeff reads Bobby's message. The last line makes him catch his breath. I advise that all preparation be made for leaving Richmond tonight. I will advise you later according to circumstances. R.E. Lee. Jeff says nothing. He quickly stands, walks down the aisle, and exits the church. Several officers and cabinet members guess that something big has just gone down. They follow Jeff out of the building. Within a few minutes, Jeff has his entire cabinet gathered in a meeting. While he expected this day to come, Jeff's not as ready as you might think. 
Yeah, he sent his family away a few days ago, and many offices have been packing valuable documents. But on this Sunday morning, Jeff and his cabinet scrambled to abandon their headquarters in Capital City at Richmond. The CS president even sends a message to Bobby Lee, which reads, To move tonight will involve the loss of many valuables, both for the want of time to pack and of transportation. Arrangements are progressing, and unless you otherwise advise, the start will be made. But the rail-thin Confederate president has no choice in the matter. He tells his subordinates to pack as many valuables as possible and burn the rest. Richmond residents get the hint when they see stacks of burning papers outside of government offices. The streets become jammed with wagons full of furniture, valuables, and necessities. The train depot overflows with people desperate to leave the city, and every available train car is jam-packed with panicked travelers. Jeff himself works until after dark. He finally leaves the columned, stuccoed Confederate White House at 7 p.m., being sure to leave his desk neat and orderly. He boards a special eight-car train along with members of his cabinet and their staff. The train pulls out of Richmond around 11 p.m., bound for Danville, Virginia, where the CSA government officials hope to set up a new capital. Those who can't afford to leave or have nowhere else to go lock themselves in their houses and listen to the city burn. The last remaining CS military men have orders to set fire not only to records and papers, but to warehouses full of tobacco and cotton, munitions, and liquor stores. The fire burns all night, destroying blocks of civilian property as well. Looters, possibly the same hungry citizens who participated in the Richmond bread riots you heard about in episode 58, break into abandoned stores and steal any necessities left on the shelves. Near dawn, the last retreating rebel troops set fire to an ordnance depot. Exploding shells break windows and feed the fires, destroying Richmond. Diarist Mary Chestnut laments, quote, Everything is lost in Richmond, even our archives. Blue-black is our horizon. Close quote. The next morning, Union troops under the command of General Godfrey Weitzel move into Richmond. Their first order of business douse the flames still threatening the city. From there, they can restore order and safety and set up a base of operations. And you can bet that more than one white Richmond resident takes notice of who has just put out the flames and occupied their hometown, the all-black 25th Union Corps. The firefighting and peace-restoring efforts take a while, so it's not until late morning on Monday, April 3rd, that President Lincoln and General Ulysses Grant hear about the occupation of Richmond. Lincoln's at City Point with Admiral David Porter when he gets a telegram with the news. The president's lined face creases into a broad smile, and he says to David, Thank God that I have lived to see this. It seems to me that I have been dreaming a horrid dream for four years. And now, the nightmare is gone. News of Richmond's occupation by Union forces also reaches Washington, D.C. The reaction there is a little less reverent and subdued than Lincoln's. Just before noon, the telegraph operator at the War Department gets a message that reads, quote, here is the first message for you in four years from Richmond. Close quote. The shocked operator jumps out of his chair, runs to the open window, shouts to passersby, Richmond has fallen! The news, which clearly indicates that this gruesome, stressful war is coming to a close, spreads like wildfire throughout Washington City. War Secretary Edwin Stanton gives an impromptu speech to a crowd of well-wishers. With a breaking voice and tears in his eyes, Edwin expresses thanks to the President, to the Army, and Navy, 
to the great commanders of sea and land, to the gallant officers and men who have periled their lives upon the battlefield and drenched the soil with their blood. Close quote. Down in Virginia, Lincoln doesn't wait long to visit Richmond. Let me give just a bit of geography. City Point sits at the confluence of the James and Appomattox rivers. It has easy access to Petersburg on the Appomattox and Richmond on the James. So on April 4th, Lincoln gets on a small ship with David Porter and just 10 sailors. The party sails north up the winding James River to Richmond. They brave torpedoes and debris in the water, but make it safely to the burned over city. When Lincoln arrives, he walks the city streets, observing shards of glass and charred remains of Confederate records. Of course, the ungainly, rail-thin president gets noticed by Richmond residents right away. Now that Richmond has been occupied by Union forces, the Emancipation Proclamation applies here. Newly freed black men and women surround Lincoln, shout praise to him, and some even kneel at his feet. Lincoln is humbled by this and says to the crowd, Don't kneel to me. That is not right. You must kneel to God only and thank him for the liberty you will here and after enjoy. I am but God's humble instrument. Lincoln continues his tour of the city. He goes to the Confederate White House, now a base for General Weitzel and his men. Lincoln even takes a minute to sit in Jeff Davis's so recently vacated office. In the late afternoon, the U.S. president returns to City Point. One Richmond reporter, Morris Chester, witnessed Lincoln's walk around town and his exchange with the jubilant freed slaves. Morris writes all of this up in his report for the Philadelphia Press. Quote, Richmond has never before presented such a spectacle of jubilee. What a wonderful change has come over the spirits of Southern dreams. Close quote. Why does Morris's tone sound so different from Mary Chestnut's? Morris is black. While Lincoln hangs out at City Point for a few more days, let's ride west with Ulysses Grant and the bulk of the Army of the Potomac. On April 4th, Ulysses gives himself a new mission. Prevent Bobby Lee from getting to North Carolina and hooking up with Joe Johnston. The blue-eyed general rides west from Petersburg to make this happen. Bobby Lee's army of Northern Virginia has been reduced to about 35,000 men total. That's everyone who was manning the lines at Petersburg or on guard duty in Richmond. They don't have enough food. Their animals are worn out. But these battle-hardened, tough-as-nails, gray and butternut-clad soldiers are determined to get to North Carolina. And Bobby has their backs. He has requested that a train full of rations meet his army at Amelia Courthouse, a small town about 40 miles west of Richmond. From here, the Confederate Army has two good options for joining up with Joe Johnston. One, they can travel southwest to Danville, check in with Jeff Davis at his new headquarters, then move into North Carolina. Or two, they can travel due west to Lynchburg in the Blue Ridge foothills, then travel due south to Danville, say hi to Jeff Davis, and move into North Carolina. Second option is longer, but still workable. Ulysses and his right-hand man, Phil Sheridan, want to stop Bobby Lee from choosing either option. But it's not the Union Army that will put the first roadblock in the Rebel Army's path. When Bobby Lee gets to Amelia Courthouse, he discovers there's been a mix-up. The War Department sent ammo, not food, to his starving men. The Virginia general is pissed. He can't afford this delay but he has no choice except to allow his men to forage for food for a few days. The Union cavalry under Phil Sheridan take full advantage of this rebel setback. 
On April 5th, Phil and his crew get ahead of the Army of Northern Virginia and block the Danville Road. That would be escape option one for Bobby Lee. The fearless cavalry commander sends word to Ulysses. I wish you were here yourself. I feel confident of capturing the Army of Northern Virginia if we exert ourselves. Ulysses doesn't need more of an invitation than that. He and a dozen or so of his staff hop on horses and ride through the night to join Phil. Sure, Ulysses is traveling ahead of his headquarters wagons, with most of his gear and fresh clothes, but there's an army to capture and a war to win. Bobby Lee switches to option two. Overnight, his men begin marching west, hoping to get to Lynchburg. But Phil won't let that happen. The advanced guards of the Union Army travel parallel to the Confederates, and on the afternoon of April 6th, they catch an isolated corps of rebel soldiers near a small river called Sailor's Creek. Phil orders his three corps to attack the rebel supply wagon train and soldiers. Within hours, federal troops have taken 6,000 POWs, including the Confederate general with a spotted record from the Battle of Gettysburg, Dick Ewell. When Bobby Lee hears about this route, he exclaims, My God, has the army been dissolved? Of course, the indomitable general from Virginia would never let that happen. He might have lost nearly a quarter of his men at Sailor's Creek, but he urges the rest of his men to keep moving towards Lynchburg. Yet, Ulysses can see that the end is near. On April 7th, the cigar-smoking general, still traveling without fresh clothes or a comfortable tent, sends a note to Bobby Lee. It reads, The results of the last week must convince you of the hopelessness of future resistance. I feel that it is my duty to shift from myself the responsibility of any further effusion of blood by asking you to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia. Very respectfully, U.S. Grant. Lee sends a message back and asks what terms the Union general might offer. Ulysses gets this message in the middle of the night, so he replies early on April 8th. His note does not sound like the unconditional surrender grant of Vicksburg or Fort Donelson. Peace being my great desire, there is but one condition I would insist upon, namely that the men and officers surrendered shall be disqualified for taking up arms again against the government of the United States. When Bobby Lee reads this note, he bristles. He's not ready to surrender and only wanted to hear General Grant's idea on terms. This note sounds like Ulysses is ready to write up a capitulation agreement right now, which he is. Bobby writes back, To be frank, I do not think the emergency has arisen to call for the surrender of this army. He suggests that the two generals meet to discuss peace terms, a political negotiation that Ulysses knows he has no authority to conduct. This exchange is painstakingly slow, since every note has to be delivered by a messenger under a flag of truce. And while the gray and blue-clad generals communicate via letter, the Army of Northern Virginia keeps moving west. See, Bobby Lee has rations, yes, actual food, waiting at Appomattox, a rail depot town a few miles east of the safety of Lynchburg. But Phil Sheridan's cavalry race to cut the rebels off. Approximately 75,000 federal soldiers get to Appomattox first, seize the train depot and rail cars full of supplies, and then position themselves on the rail lines that Bobby Lee had hoped to use as an escape route. The Army of Northern Virginia, only about 10,000 strong due to death, capture, and desertion, is trapped, badly outnumbered, and has no rations. Nonetheless, they launch a dawn attack on April 9th, Palm Sunday. 
A few hours of fighting only makes the situation worse as two Union Corps block a Confederate advance while more Yankees threaten the rebel rear. Bobby Lee finally admits defeat. The white-bearded general negotiates a temporary battlefield ceasefire and sends one last note to Ulysses. I, therefore, request an interview at such time and place as you may designate to discuss the terms of the surrender of this army in accordance with your offer. Ulysses accepts without question. Clad thoughtfully in his dress uniform, Bobby Lee prepares to surrender himself and his army. With a heavy heart, he tells his staff, There is nothing left for me to do but go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You heard about the meeting at Wilmer McLean's house between the commander of federal forces and the commander of all the Confederate armies in this episode's opening. So let me jump now to the specifics of the agreement that these two military masterminds reached. First, officers and enlisted men will be paroled and sent home. No one's going to jail. No one's facing a treason trial. Second, any Confederate soldier who owns his horse or mule can take it home with him. Third, all Confederate army munitions and guns will be handed over, but any soldier who claims to own his gun can take it home with him, and General Robert E. Lee will keep his sword. It seems that Ulysses is following Lincoln's second inaugural address directive, with malice toward none. These terms of surrender are very generous. Unconditional surrender grant doesn't even include the words, unconditional surrender. While Ulysses' aide-de-camp, Ely Parker, makes copies of the agreement, Bobby Lee has to humble himself once more. He tells Ulysses that his men are starving and have been living off parched corn for days. He badly needs, quote, both rations and forage, close quote. In line with the generous nature of his surrender terms, Ulysses doesn't withhold food from the now-paroled rebel soldiers. He promises to deliver three days' worth of rations for Bobby Lee's 25,000 men. When Ulysses asks if this will be enough, Bobby Lee replies, I think it will be ample, and it will be a great relief, I assure you. As the meeting breaks up, the old Virginian general keeps his face inscrutable. Bobby Lee has kept himself aloof, and as he rides away from the house, the Union officers or staff members watch him go without knowing his true feelings. Ulyss, on the other hand, looks disheartened. At a moment when many of his men are celebrating and clapping each other's backs in congratulations for a job completed, 
the blue-eyed general stays quiet and pensive. Ulysses proves the truth of the hero of the Napoleonic Wars, Duke of Wellington's adage, quote, next to a battle loss, there's no spectacle more melancholy than a battle won, close quote. When Lincoln, by now back in Washington, D.C., hears the news of Bobby Lee's surrender, he does not hide his feelings like the Southern commander, nor does he feel a similar sadness to Ulysses. No, after leading a nation at war with itself for four years, President Lincoln unleashes all of his joy at the conflict's close. War Secretary Edwin Stanton bursts into Lincoln's office and delivers the news. General Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia this afternoon. Lincoln unabashedly hugs Edwin. Back at Appomattox, Bobby Lee returns to his men. He has to tell them that their fight is over. He has surrendered. And now, in front of these men, that he's led for years, the Virginian lets down his guard. Soldiers line the road as Bobby Lee rides by and he says to them, Men, we have fought through this war together. I have done the best that I could for you. At this, Bobby's voice breaks and the tears start flowing. One soldier lets the news of surrender sink in, then calls out, I love you just as well as ever, General Lee. In the federal camps, soldiers go crazy when they hear the news of Bobby Lee's surrender. No more marching, fighting, camping, or marching. They are going home. The blue-clad men start firing cannons and raucous celebrations. But their commander, Ulysses, keeps his eye on the solemnity of the occasion. He tells his men to keep it together. The war is over. The rebels are countrymen again. And the best sign of rejoicing, the victory, will be to abstain from all demonstrations. To their credit, most soldiers follow this order. And three days later, they show a hell of a lot of respect for the capitulating Confederates. On April 12th, the Army of the Potomac holds a formal surrender ceremony for the Army of Northern Virginia. Ulysses doesn't attend. He assigns Major General Joshua Chamberlain, the hero of Little Round Top at the Battle of Gettysburg, to receive the surrender. As Confederate soldiers stack their guns and hand over their battle flags, many of them are in tears. But Joshua orders his men to treat their countrymen and former foes with respect. Josh describes the scene when Confederate General John Gordon, who took over Stonewall Jackson's command, in his corps approach. Quote, Instructions had been given, and when the head of each division column comes opposite our group, our bugle sounds the signal, and instantly our whole line from right to left, regiment by regiment, in succession, gives the soldier salutation. From the order arms to the old carry, the marching salute. Gordon, at the head of the column, riding with heavy spirit and downcast face, catches the sound of shifting arms, looks up, and takes the meaning. Wheels superbly, with profound salutation, as he drops the point of his sword to the boot toe, then facing to his own command, gives word for his successive brigades to pass us with the same position of the manual. Honor answering honor. Close quote. Imagine this. Hundreds of Union soldiers stand at attention, with their rifles standing at their sides. At the bugle's call, they all bring their guns up, holding the butt in their right hand as the barrel rests against their right shoulders. Confederate troops return the salute as they march up to the collection piles and hand over their weapons to the Yankees. This display of mutual respect between these armies goes a long way toward healing the deep wounds of this war. A few days later, 
On April 18th, Confederate General Joe Johnston negotiates a surrender of his once formidable Army of Tennessee to Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. The armies of the Confederacy are now disbanded, and despite a few minor skirmishes, the Civil War is effectively over. But the rising hope of unity, reconciliation, and a smooth transition to reunion sparked by the generous terms at Appomattox and the respectful surrender ceremony a few days later won't last. Maybe that's why we like to remember these events. They speak to what so many wanted and what might have been. However, before we follow the United States into its post-war phase, let's take a bird's-eye view of the conflict, answer a few lingering questions, and talk about some of the fallout from America's Civil War. Let's start with the most tangible aspect of the war, the death toll. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. Casualty numbers in the Civil War are hard to pin down. You've probably heard estimates ranging from 620,000 total deaths up to 850,000. That's a huge difference, but let me give as many accurate numbers as I can. Going into the war, the Confederacy had a smaller population than the Union. 9 million, 3.5 of which were enslaved compared to 22 million white and black. The seceded South fielded over 1 million men, while the Yankees put over 2 million soldiers into battle. Of those over 3 million men, and covertly some women, at least 620,000 died. That's according to James McPherson, the god of Civil War historians. He says 360,000 Federals and at least 260,000 Confederates died. Historian Ron Chernow, writing a little more recently, puts that figure at 750,000. If we use McPherson's 620,000, that means at least 2.5% of the entire American population died in the conflict. But let's zoom in a bit. The South's smaller population meant a smaller death toll, but not in percentages. Historians estimate that nearly 20% of the white male population in the South died during the war. Yeah, one-fifth. That's approaching the death rate France will suffer during World War I. We'll later call those poor souls the lost generation. Yet these numbers still don't account for civilian deaths from battles, starvation, or disease. Can't give you an accurate count on that front. We also need to address the property damage done to farms, railways, and factories, mostly in the South. Some historians claim that many parts of the South will not recover economically from the Civil War by the time the Great Depression hits in 1929. Wow. To quote William Tecumseh Sherman from a speech he will give 15 years after the war, there is many a boy who looks on war as all glory, but boys, it is all hell. Now that we've looked at the numbers, let's ask those seemingly unanswerable questions. Why did the South lose? And why did the North win? First, let's look at the South. Many people want to blurt out some basic fact and hope that these will answer the question. You've probably heard people argue that the Confederacy had a lot working against it, like being outnumbered, having less depth of military leadership, having a controversial president like Jefferson Davis at the helm, having significant internal strife, or not having enough international support. And yes, all of these factors did contribute to the Confederacy's ultimate demise. But you can make the same arguments about the North. Internal strife, New York draft riots, and peace Democrats. Lack of military leadership, George B. Little Mac McClellan. Need I say more? Controversial president, Abraham Lincoln, whose own party members tried to oust him in 1864. International support, 
Eh, only in theory. So what did cause the demise of the Confederacy? Well, Civil War historian Gary Gallagher has an answer. He argues, quote, the key factor in bringing rebel defeat, and this is easy to overlook if you don't deal with military history, is the United States armies proved they could go anywhere and do anything they wanted. Once the Confederate civilian population figured that out, what alternative to surrender remained? Close quote. This argument also helps us understand how the North won. Like I said, the 22 states in the Union faced many of the same struggles and setbacks as the Confederacy, except the population, of course. Some historians argue that the North won because, at a few key points, the tide of war swung its way. The first came at the Battle of Antietam, a Union victory that made Great Britain think twice about helping the Confederacy. The second is the Emancipation Proclamation, which expanded the scope and purpose of the war for the North. The third happened at the simultaneous Union victories of Vicksburg and Gettysburg, which gave many Northerners a boost in morale. And the final is the Union capture of Atlanta, which enabled Lincoln to win re-election in 1864. These key turning points gave the Union the will to win. With that, Yankee armies could go anywhere and do anything, as Gallagher said. It's not that the Confederacy lost the will to fight and win. They had plenty of that almost to the end. It's that the Union had momentum on its side at crucial times. If any of these turning points had gone another way, you and I might be having a very different conversation today. We may never get a definitive answer on why the South lost, or how the North won, but I hope these arguments give you somewhere to start as you explore those questions yourself. Now that I've discussed reasons for the war's outcome, let's spend a minute talking about a few of its repercussions. Veterans, North and South, faced serious struggles, especially the amputees. They had to rely on federal and state pensions, family help, and generous friends to make their way in the world. For men whose job it was to financially support a family, perform quote-unquote manly labor, and be self-sufficient, their disabling wounds caused daily psychological pain and social ostracism. This was especially true in the South. And here, they didn't even have the balm of victory to take the sting out of their wounds. Southern masculinity, even more than in the North, hinged on an able-bodied man taking care of his wife and children and, if a slaveholder, controlling his slaves and land. Men who didn't own slaves could still control their domain through sheer physical will. But amputees didn't fit this mold anymore. It would take years for Southern society to construct a social place for its maimed veterans, but by then, many had disappeared to the fringes of society. Some veterans came home to a hero's welcome. The aftermath of war led to expanded career options, especially political careers. The best example is probably Ulysses S. Grant, who had become President of the United States in 1868, before more Civil War vets would go on to become President. Rutherford B. Hayes, James A. Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, and William McKinley. Countless congressmen, governors, mayors, and state reps used their war service to boost their careers. One example was General Joshua Chamberlain. He went into the war as a college professor, climbed the military ladder through his exploits at Gettysburg and other battles, then went home to Maine to become a four-term governor. Besides the effects on a personal level, the war led to an expansion of federal government powers. Federal taxes, the draft, a national banking system, and a federal welfare program, the Freedmen's Bureau, became woven into the fabric of the federal government. The war also effectively took the option of secession off the table. Lastly, and this cannot be overstated, 
the largest repercussion of the war was the end of slavery. As I said in episode 68, there would still be a fight over citizenship, voting rights, property rights, and social equality for black Americans. And we'll cover that. But for now, in April 1865, slavery no longer has constitutional protection. And as seceded states come back into the Union, they'll outlaw it as well. Across the Civil War, approximately 4 million slaves gained their freedom. The last slaves to be freed live in Texas. On June 19, 1865, slaves in the Lone Star State hear about the war's end and their emancipation. The modern day of remembrance, Juneteenth, will honor and celebrate this event. And so, the Confederacy ends. The deeply shaken Republic of the United States survives, albeit with a long road ahead. The nation needs to rebuild itself and its society. In a word, it's entered an over a decade-long phase known as Reconstruction. But before America can even catch its breath, the still-burning embers of the Civil War have one last high-profile life to claim. And this time, the shot won't be fired on a battlefield. It'll be fired in a theater. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Researching and writing by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar. Production by Airship. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. For bibliography of all primary and secondary sources consulted in writing this episode, visit htdspodcast.com. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. CL and I are beyond grateful to you kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Will Caldwell, Jason Carstens, John Frugal Dougal, Michael and Rachel Ercolini, Bob Drazovich, Keith Downer, Drew Hill, Andrew Fortunati, Bryce Hancock, Brad Perman, Dax Jones, John Leach, Jeffrey Moose, and Brandon Shaw. Join me in two weeks where I'd like to tell you a story.